Our emotions have such a tremendous impact on our daily life. And yet so few of us really have an understanding of whether they are good or bad or what we're supposed to do with them. And, and for followers of Jesus, there's questions even about, you know, is it okay for a follower of Jesus to be angry or to feel anxious? Are, are those feelings things which we shouldn't feel if we really have faith in Christ? Is, is it possible that we feel them because we have faith in Christ? Over the past 10 years or so, I really think one of the most fruitful kinds of conversations that I get into with young followers of Jesus is what role emotions play in our faith and in the kingdom of God at large. And today I want to invite you into that conversation. We're talking with one of my dear friends in the past decade. Uh, his name is Jonathan Durham. He's a therapist in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, I'll leave his contact information in the show notes. Um, and I just, in light of the cultural moment right now where you know, so many of the, the emotions that are a bit harder for us to carry are stirred up and raised to the surface. I, I just cannot think of many conversations that are more worthwhile right now than this. What do we do with these uh, heavier emotions and how do we follow Jesus with them? Thanks for joining us today. This is The House Podcast, and we're helping the next generation discover real life in Jesus Christ. Uh, so this last week, I saw a video clip of a guy at Costco. I don't know if you saw this. There was a guy at Costco who was being videoed by an elderly lady, I think. And she was asking him why he's not wearing a face mask. And he, um, she was standing fairly far away and he was getting more and more visibly upset. And then he told her he feels threatened by her. And she said, you feel threatened by me? And he yelled and he threw out his arms wide, like in a, a kind of a muscular, uh, intimidating pose. And he, he yelled, I feel threatened and started marching toward her. And it was a very interesting moment. I, I mean, all, all I kept thinking of is that he is unaware of what he actually feels right mm. now. And, and so I wanted to ask you this question because I think you and I talked about this a bit before. But it seems to me that a lot of us, self-included, are unaware of our emotions a lot of times. Mm. And I want to know if you agree and why. I do. I agree a whole lot. And I've not seen that video. And yet, as you describe it, I feel like I've seen that video. <laughs> um, it, that is really common, all too common. Um, and I think there are a lot of things that contribute to that, uh, many of which you know as, as well as I or, or better than me. Um, I, I think some of that traces all the way back to uh, the Enlightenment and just the advent of modernism, and where we came to prioritize our thinking above our feeling. And we sort of learned to relegate our emotions to the seller, <laughs> uh, to the lowest rank, uh, the lowest ranked faculties we have. Um, I also think that we, uh, most of us, haven't seen very many good examples of emotionally healthy people. Um, and there are lots of reasons for that too, but uh, we have to see it at some point to believe it not just believe it consciously but believe it with our our behavior and our choices and our uh the path that we start walking down um and so instead what we got were examples that gave us the messages implicitly and even often explicitly that our feelings were weaknesses or flaws in us that our emotions threatened our ability to be wise or healthy or reasonable um, or strong. And so we decided many of us, not consciously, but unconsciously that they just weren't useful or that they were dangerous. Um, so why would I, bother paying attention to what I'm feeling or allowing what I'm feeling to surface more 
if it feels like a wave that's probably going to drown me if I let it hit me. Yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. I don't, I guess I should, I'm curious what question comes out of this, I guess. Most of the young folks I've worked with in the past few years have, it seems like they could identify parents or authority figures who have done exactly what you've just said, place a really high priority on uh, something that they've called rationality or logic and, and disregarded feelings or subjugated them to, to really low, you know, like it's not something to really value or make space for They're incidental, something like that. Mm-hmm. Maybe even, maybe even they're, in, they're disruptive and, and they're unwelcome. They're just a necessary part of like a world that doesn't work, something like that. Anyway, yeah. what I've, yeah. what, what I've seen all, almost in, maybe it's in response to that among uh, college students is actually a really heightened value on emotions and feelings for many of them. And yet still it doesn't seem like there's a lot of nuance or awareness of most of the feelings. Like we have a, a awareness of the feelings when they get to like a level nine or 10. And then, and there's a great weight put on them, but like generally speaking, um, it seems like most people, even in, even in an age group and in a culture that wants to now, maybe it's in response sort of value emotions, still don't have a great understanding of the emotions that are going on most of the time. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, and I think that that does make sense to me. And I, I agree as well somehow how that hits me is that, or how I try to beginning, uh, try to understand that is that when it takes so much force to sort of push the conversation in a different direction, it takes so much energy to push back against some of that messaging that we grew up with. Yeah. That in order to break the sort of surface tension of those messages and break through that's going to look like an eruption on the other side. Right. Right. Um, and it is going to be messier and less refined and less, we're, we're not very well practiced at it. And this is something that takes practice. Yeah. And I've heard you say before, um, that I think maybe you were talking to me about some, some recent conversations you were having with some, people or something. And you were talking about the importance of differentiating between feeling and thinking. And can, can you say more about that? I, I couldn't explain that very well. But. Yeah. I, I know. Like I maybe often, when you ask somebody what they're feeling, they tell you their thoughts. And when you ask them what their thoughts are, they might tell you their feelings. And it seemed like you were flexing some importance in, in differentiating those things. Well, Oh yeah, I mean, we, you and I have conversations all the time where someone asks you how you're doing or even how you're feeling. We may even be explicitly saying, how are you feeling? Which ought to be an emotions question. And our response is just what we think. So, oh man, I'm doing good. Uh, I just think this COVID stuff is really hard, right? So. Mm. Yeah. I mean, haven't you had, have had those conversations where, how are you feeling right now? <laughs> I'm doing fine. <laughs> this COVID what stuff you, is really the crazy. Opposite. What are you thinking about right now? I just feel scared. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, hmm. that's right. That's right. And, and, and I think it's, yeah, partly because we don't really know how to differentiate our thoughts and our feelings, they're all just sort of jumbled in, jumbled up together uh, in our inner world. And so right. when we try to grab one, half the time we end up grabbing another. Uh, well, outside of realizing the, it. yeah, outside of the semantics and that, um, why might it be good for us to be able to differentiate those things? Like what, what would be good for me? Like if you said, you know, Jason, how are you feeling today? Um, why would it be good for me to be able to tell you my feelings as opposed to my thinking and not confuse those things? Mm, Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, And one that's pretty hard to answer. I think I, I I'd say this though. 
when a friend asks what I'm feeling, that is an invitation to connection and relationship to being known Hmm. rather than being observed or processed Um, to being known in an embodied way, feeling and experiencing connection with another person, uh, a kind of connection that can only exist in a place of emotional authenticity um, where I'm really being invited to bear my heart, uh, not just share my thoughts. Yes. That's interesting. It makes me, um, I suspect that at, at a subconscious level, sometimes maybe consciously, but definitely at a subconscious level, that people might often even ask me how I'm feeling and I respond with thinking because I don't maybe want that connection because I'm pushing back, you know, like you might say, how are you feeling? And I, I don't even maybe know what I'm doing. It's sort of automatic and I've learned it at this point, but I might respond with, with thoughts language to keep us at a distance. That makes me feel safe. Uh, Absolutely. Safety. I, I believe we have learned to find safety in our thinking where, and, and so our emotions don't feel safe (laughs) Um, or maybe because our emotions don't feel safe. And so, yeah, my thoughts, me sharing my thoughts in response to an earnest question may actually have the effect like you alluded to of, of maintaining a distance between us Mm -hmm. so that I can stay safe. But also, it uh, we we too often base our willingness to connect with other other human beings on our ideologies, right? Our our thinking. Uh, and so, if I'm sharing my thoughts with you, and then you disagree, you have a different opinion, for example, right? Then I feel very justified in maintaining an emotional distance from you. And not really opening myself up to connecting with you. Yeah. And what's tragic to me about that, not to zoom way out on this, but we're not able to have meaningful, productive dialogue about dynamic, hard, debatable human issues if if we're basing our willingness to connect with one another on our shared thinking. are and I think you know this it, it just to be true in 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 close relationship in our friendship and in marriage that when you start from a plot a, a foundation of emotional connection and interdependence, then you're able to have those hard conversations about differences yep. of thought and belief yep. and them go well. <laughs> right, but if we start from you and I don't like the same band. And therefore, we can't emotionally connect. How in the world are we going to talk about the stuff that really matters? Yes, that's right. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Um, Jonathan, uh, I'm I'm still thinking, and maybe most of this conversation will be sort of circling around this, but uh, about an awareness of our emotions. Um, And and from, from the Christian perspective, I guess the reason why this matters so much to me is because God has placed us, God has created us to be people who are stewards, who live like sons and daughters, who don't live like enslaved to the things of this world, um, even in our own bodies. And, and, and an unawareness of things that we feel all day um, doesn't necessarily put us in a good place to steward them well, you know? So I, maybe mm. that's why I'm so interested in this uh, at yeah. an intellectual level, theological level. At a personal level, of course, I'm, or a more interpersonal level, I'm really interested in it because I see um, it, it really looks like for many people that I love very dearly, it looks like they are suffering under um, the sort of tides of their emotions that they feel on a day-to-day basis. And I think that they want this too, 
um, I definitely want for them to be in a place of stewarding them rather than feeling tossed around by them. So that's mm -hmm. maybe the, the sort of mm -hmm. where this question is coming out of. But a few years ago, you told me it was such a helpful metaphor, man. You said that you think of emotions in a similar way, uh, or you, you think of emotions a lot like our nervous system. And I want you to unpack that a little bit. How does a nervous system compare to our emotions? Why is that a helpful metaphor? Yeah, so, so our nervous system connects us with our experience of life in real time so that we know uh, in a visceral way, in an experienced way that we're alive. We don't just know it with our thoughts. We feel it. We, we feel the reality of our own lives and where we are in them. Um, our nerves locate us. Um, and we need to receive the messages that they bring. We, we need to receive that desperately. We, we need to feel uh, the comfort of a hug. We need to feel the pain when we put our hand too near the, near the stove so that we know to move it. Uh, right. And as much as no one wants to experience the message of pain from our nerves, if you think about it, it's undeniably adaptive. It's vital for us. We, we're ac actually far more at risk and in danger in our lives if we can't register pain. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Jonathan, I remember um, I spent a couple of weeks working on a leper colony at one point and in my life. And I remember mm. being so surprised by this, but the testimony was that the leprosy itself isn't what is going to kill these people or be so harmful to them. It's the fact that they can't feel. And so at night when a rat is chewing on their feet while they sleep, they aren't, they don't feel that. And so it just keeps doing it. And eventually they have to have their foot amputated, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. And it was, the, it was a really, uh, of course, heartbreaking, you know, sort of uh, piece of just knowledge about the life experience of, of lepers today, which live in the world today, who live in the world today. And, um, and yeah, nobody wants to feel pain, but if, you, if your body is having something wrong occur to it, then you want to know that it's happening so you can adjust. Right. Or that's, so you can make some decision. That's right. And, and, and so that leads me to the second big thing uh, about emotions functioning like our nervous system that it, you, you can't selectively numb feeling. Uh, that's true of our actual nervous system. It's also true of our emotions. Um, you can numb feelings just like you can have you like numb your nerve your nerve sure. endings through anesthesia but if i did that then yeah i could not only it'd be great because i couldn't feel pain but i also couldn't feel pleasure i also right. couldn't feel good good feelings in that moment and our emotions are the same way um right. if no one likes to feel lonely right that's 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 not an enjoyable emotion that's a really difficult place to to be emotionally Absolutely. But if you've never felt loneliness, then you've also never felt connection. Right. If you've never known the ache of wanting to be close with someone, wanting to feel someone else close to you and connecting with you and loving and affirming and cherishing you, then you won't know it when you have it. <laughs> right you won't you won't be able to experience it when you have it and so even though of course none of us want to feel lonely and and we shouldn't want to feel lonely it's it's not it's not a sick pain obsession that i'm advocating for here but it just i think is a reality that we experience our lives by contrast that way we i know uh I only know how good it feels to be in this air conditioned cool room right now because I know how hot it is and humid and muggy it is outside right now right. <laughs> from having right. another, been there. Yeah. Another way to say it would be, um, I, I can, um, forego the ability to feel lonely, but only by also giving up the ability to feel connected. Yes. Yes. So that's I right. Mean, like, so if I'm saying I don't ever want to feel lonely anymore, well, of course, nobody wants to feel lonely. 
but, but then by taking action to make sure that you never feel lonely again, you also are making sure you will never feel connected again. Yes. Okay. Yes. This, yep. this, so let me reframe this or just come back to this point and then ask a follow-up question. The first thing I hear you saying is that our nervous systems give us data in real time from the world around us and, and, it's, and our body's sort of presence in the world around us. Right? Yes. That's what Okay. Yes. And, 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 and you're comparing that to our emotions and you're saying our emotions also give us data in real time about the world around us or about our experience in the world around us. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. Our emotions and, and, locate us. Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's, uh, I guess maybe two questions that come from that to me right now. And the first is that like our nervous system generally, that means that our, our emotions giving us data, that might mean we're confronted with a lot of uncomfortable data. Yeah. No doubt. No doubt. And that's not intrinsically a bad thing. No, I don't believe it is. Uh, because even that difficult data, even the pain signals, uh, are vital messages that we need to be able to receive and respond to. And when we do receive and respond to those messages, there's always life and connection on the other side of that. Hmm. Okay. So I'm going to just give up my other question I wanted to ask, cause this is more interesting. Uh, the, just like your nervous system, when I feel pain on my foot, for example, uh, my big toe, the, the sense, the sensory data that tells me there's pain doesn't carry with it all of the information I need to know what I should do about it. Yeah. Would you say that's the same with your emotions? So if I feel lonely, that the feeling of loneliness doesn't necessarily tell me what I should do with that, but that I need to draw on something else to figure out what to do now. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yep. Uh, and, and, and this is where I really do think that our emotions, I'm going to, I'm going to loop in one other analogy and we'll try to keep them somewhat distinct, but sure. um, it, I, I, I think it's helpful to, to think of our emotions and those signals as like little kids, just, just life, uh, full of life, energetic children, <laughs> but young children. We, our kids have something that we need they have a, a liveliness, just a passion for life. That's vital. That's really important. Um, and yet I think all of us know when we look at kids that kids are going to need some guidance. They're going to need some boundaries and, 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 right. and, and leadership and guidance and nurturing uh, and shepherding in order for that, that pure joy in life or that pure uh, passion for life to serve them well. Um, and I think our emotions are, are similar that, that we, hmm. those messages, those, those messages are, don't come with their own interpretation. <laughs> don't come right. with, uh, we, we don't need to trust the messenger with its own interpretation. Yeah. It doesn't come with its own guidance. Like you said, right? Yeah. 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 That's right. So we have to receive we're at our best with emotions when we really listen to and receive the message in its detail, in its fullness, and then connect that with larger perspectives and views and convictions and, and boundaries uh, to begin to form a bigger picture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That reminds me of a, um, a pretty profound moment in my life. I've spoken about a few times, but it was when my youngest daughter, Audrey, um, I think she was probably two, maybe, maybe three, close to three. It was nine or 10 o'clock in the morning on a Saturday. And she came into the kitchen while I was having my second cup of coffee. And she said, daddy, can I have ice cream for breakfast? <laughs> and, and I remember, um, this sort of, this sort of series of thoughts where I, my first thought was, no, that's crazy. I'm not going to give you ice cream for breakfast. And my, but my second thought was, I'm so glad she asked me 
that, um, that conveys some kind of trust or something. And then my third thought was, how do I maintain a relationship with her where she will ask me these kinds of questions rather than trying to do that herself? Um, and um, mm. because I want to say, I want to be there to provide the wisdom that she's going to need to be a healthy person and to grow up well. And, and of course, when she might hate me now and be angry at me now saying no, but when she's 30 years old, she's really going to thank me that I didn't give her ice cream every morning, you know, right. uh, when she, right. maybe she'll, maybe she'll have to be 40 before she thanks me, but somewhere in there. And yep. um, anyway, metaphorically or by analogy, if I come back to emotions, it strikes me, Jonathan, that like, I might not like to, to attend to, my feeling of loneliness, mm -hmm. but, but what happens if I disallow that? What happens if I stop attending to that? Will it metaphorically speaking, sneak ice cream in the middle of the night when I'm asleep? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, do you see mm -hmm. how that connects? Like yeah. I'm wondering what happens if I don't attend? Cause that, that's actually will, that will happen with my kids, for example, yeah. if yeah. I don't give them room to attend to these things and they can't come to me with things that I'm going to say no to, then they're going to just attend to those things without me. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So can I give an example of this just from my own yeah, life? Please do. Please do. Um, Cause I grew up with a lot of rules against anger, uh, unspoken internal rules against anger. I, I just grew up believing half consciously that, other people could feel angry and that was fine, but I don't do anger. I, I'm not supposed to feel angry. When I, when I get upset, when I feel angry, I feel upset that I'm upset. <laughs> I'm angry that I've right. gotten angry or that I felt anger in the first place. And so I learned really early in life to just deny anger and, and just sort of, I can disconnect from it almost at will and ignore it, but it doesn't go away it just hides for a while and festers <laughs> and eventually comes out sideways in a, in a misguided rerouted way. So right. uh, an example of that would be, I remember a couple weeks ago um, reading, I was in the middle of reading an article about George Floyd and I knew I felt uncomfortable. I knew I felt just, sort of agitated as I was reading the details of this story and but I didn't really feel able to or maybe willing to acknowledge how angry I felt um in 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 reading this and uh probably about halfway through reading the article my son came up and was frustrated about something a project he was working on. He was trying to work on some kind of Lego craft thing and wanted to ask for my help. And before I even heard like what he was frustrated about or what he even wanted from me, I just snapped at him. <laughs> I right. wasn't horribly ugly, but it was, I, I was short and I was frustrated and he felt it. He felt the impact of my anger and I wasn't even aware yet that I had, I, I was feeling angry. And so it, it was tempting for me in that moment to go, well, no, he was the angry one. <laughs> he was frustrated and mad. Yeah. And I was just pushing back against his frustration. But when I really sat with that, I realized that I didn't feel like I could take on any of his frustration because I was already carrying too much of my own and it would have been the straw that broke the camel's back. And so I had to, uh, I, I instead tried to offload mine onto him. <laughs> Mm. not not a great parenting moment of course right and it in a disconnective right. moment relationally and that's part of what i want to get at there is that when we're willing to receive those messages and 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 acknowledge them and their reality and their importance then we're less likely to offload them on other people and we're more likely to receive closeness and connection uh it, yeah, instead of the opposite of, of disconnection and discord. Yeah. I want to come back to that with um, a practical maybe question here in the end, but let me ask a couple questions before we get there. So if you could have received 
the, the feelings of anger that you had, if, if, if your sort of emotional nervous system, so to speak, is conveying data to you, what does, does anger have a, a message that it's usually telling? Even if it doesn't have guidance, like what, what does anger tell us? What's the data yeah. you receive? Yeah, absolutely. And so, so there's a psychologist named Mark Brackett who, who talks about emotions. He, he, he almost classifies them like the natural world is classified. Like there are families of emotions and they're characterized by certain features. And, and, and he says, and I agree with him, that, that anger, the anger family of emotions always has something to do with injustice or change that's needed. Um, and that, and, and so, so when I feel angry, what I'm, the message that's, that needs to get through to me is that something in my experience, something around me needs to change. Something needs to be different. Movement is needed. It's a very activating emotion, uh, that at its best is designed, I believe, to move us towards justice and truthfulness and clarity um, and actually reconciliation. I don't think you can, as, as a Christian, really move toward reconciliation without anger actually being a part of that. It's fascinating. That sounds right. In my experience, I, I, you know, probably in the past five or six years, and I think you and I've talked about this a bit, I've become more aware of, of, my own experience with anger mm. and I feel a lot of it a lot of the time. And it's only been in the past couple of years that I've realized how much I've got kind of like this extra f- tank of fuel every day. And I can, yeah. I can actually do a lot of things with that anger, you know, I just, yeah. uh, but, but if I don't attend to that and, and use that well, it, it can also, it can also be an extra fuel tank for things which are unhealthy. Um, yes. But, yes. But, but it does give me a, a sort of degree of energy and fortitude and passion and, you know, whatever, those kinds of things that all seem to map onto that um, to accomplish some things that if I'm not angry a little bit, at least I think I may not care as much or I may not um, yep. move, move towards solving that or addressing that or whatever as much. It's, it's really interesting. It sounds right to me. Well, and for me, the way that shows up is in honesty and truth telling, like, my, I'm wired to try to preserve the appearance of peace and harmony at all costs. And so unless I am able to get angry, I may not tell the whole truth or be totally honest about my feelings, thoughts, opinions, or experiences if it's at all inconvenient or might upset or disrupt someone else's experience. So I actually right. need my, my anger to fuel honesty and genuineness for me. That's so beautiful. It's like, I, it just strikes me right now how it's so rare, so rare to talk about anger in a redemptive way at all. Yeah. Um, it's, that is a, a class of emotions that, and maybe it's, maybe it's for white people in particular. I don't know, but I, I know that a lot of, a lot of white families, if, if you were to ask about emotions that were not allowed when they're young, anger is a big one. Yeah. Well, and, and I would argue that what happens when we don't learn, and I'm talking broadly here, just as a society, if we don't learn how to steward anger well and practice anger well, it, it's not that it doesn't exist. Right. Like, but that's where we have families that look perfect on the outside and on the inside once a week, dad just erupts and explodes and explodes and rages on everyone out yeah. of nowhere. Right. Yeah. And that's just an example, right? There are lots of different ways this can show sure. up, but that sets up an explosion or an implosion where healthy anger is a steady burn. Hmm. And it's a steady terrifying, burn, but it's cool. Yeah, it's great. That's right. It's, it's, it's powerful and it's sometimes messy and it's raw. And I think for those reasons, partly it does tend to bother us white folk quite a bit because <laughs> it doesn't always look clean and neat and tidy. The picture's a little rough, a little raw, a little gritty, but it is vital. 
Yeah, and I would I would only say this: it doesn't look uh, tidy in the way that we've defined it and have grown comfortable with. <laughs> you know, it may yes. look it may look it may look totally clean and purifying and something like that to another person, right? Um, yes. All right. Let me ask about another. I have at least two more here. What does sadness tell us? What kind of data does sadness give us? And these, I'm, I'm, by the way, I'm focusing, of course, if it's obvious, on emotions that that typically we don't make a lot of space for. Yeah. And, and assuming these are ones that maybe we would want to kind of cut out and not experience. But, yeah. but what if, but what if there really is important data that's being conveyed to us by these feelings? Um, so yeah. yeah, what does sadness tell us? Um, sadness honors loss. I think that's, that's how Chip Dodd puts it. Um, and I think he did a good job with that. The sadness has the unique capacity to help us to, honor to give weight proper weight and value and and um memorial uh substance to things we've lost um and i think it's as as much as that just still sounds pretty miserable the the upside the other side of being willing to experience sadness or receive that message of sadness is that we're actually better equipped to receive new hope on the other side of it we can't uh i I think all of us who've lived even just a little bit of life know the experience of a dream or a hope or a goal or a wish that just never happened that just never came and is gone and and we know it can't come back in this life it it's just gone uh and as awful and heavy as it is to acknowledge that and to 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 name it to express it, it we also i think know that like our old hopes aren't gonna cut it for our whole lives. They're not going to give it, that's not enough hope. They're not strong enough hopes to get us through our whole lives, a whole life of losing things that matter to us. Cause we're, yeah, that, we're never promised we won't lose meaningful things right. in this life. We're, we're told that, that those losses won't compare with our gains if we're in Christ. Mm-hmm but we still lose and have to mourn all the time in, and in you this said, life. You said something matters to us and it strikes me that that also is sadness also tells me this sounds so basic, man, but I think we're unaware of this. I think, I think I am that sadness tells me something mattered to me. Yes. And sometimes, sometimes we're not even aware of how much something matters to us. If there's even a cliche about it and they're like a, uh, something about you don't miss it until it's gone or know how much you love something. Some, there's some kind of cliche in our culture. I think about that's that. a song. I think there's a song. It's a, song. Yeah. It's uh-huh. a country song yeah. or something. No, uh, I don't but, think it's country, but it is not awesome. <laughs> well, we can share feelings first and therefore we can disagree about ideas. Um, the, but I, but I do think that's an interesting Point and data. I mean, sometimes we are very aware of it, and then sadness can maybe feel really. We can feel it deeply, but there, there is maybe sometimes in sadness an aha moment. Yeah. About how much something mattered to us. Um, yeah. That that if you matter to me, we don't like the word "ought" in our culture today. I know, but if you really matter to me and you're gone, I ought to feel sad. Yeah. Um, yes. That's, that's actually right. one of the ways I do honor you. And yeah. our relationship, you know, and that actually is really instructive, right? That that can bring about a, a a whole lot of learning and 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 future life giving experiences, right? Because so if yeah, if uh, this is a random example, but if I invited you to something uh, and you said you were going to come and then you didn't come, well, I would feel hurt for one thing, but but I also just would feel sad. And, uh, but I may not know how, how much it would bother me or upset or sadden me until it happened. (laughs) Right. 
And then, but then if that happened and I realized, oh, you know, I didn't know it would bother me this much, but it really is making me sad that Jason wasn't able to come tonight. Then I can do something with that information, right? Like I am able then to, I don't know, call you up the next day and say, man, I get why you couldn't make it. It made me really sad. I had just realized again, how much this friendship matters to me. Can we, can we make a point of seeing each other soon? Mm. Right? Yeah. Like that, so, okay. That, yes. Let's go see. ahead. Well, I was only thinking about that coming sideways thing. Like if I acknowledge, if you acknowledge that and you are, you go, man, I'm sad. Why do I feel sad? And you get curious about that, right? Like, why do I feel sad? And yeah. you think, oh, I mean, I think this relationship matters a lot to me. And then you decide, you want to call me up and tell me that I matter a lot to you. That's like mm -hmm. a really positive, cool thing to do on the heels of sadness, right? Yes. If, if you're unaware of it, and this happens a lot in our culture, um, you feel sad. But instead of listening to that sadness, you do what many of us do. You don't like feeling sad. And so you, you, you actually feel angry yep. that you feel sad because yep. you don't think that you should feel sad. You feel angry because that's an injustice to you. And instead of, of having sadness be an opportunity to tell me that I matter a lot to you, you actually get upset with me because of an injustice that has occurred to you. That's right. Yeah. The, the, that is the difference between me calling you up and saying, Hey man, Oh, I missed you. Can we please see each other soon versus the conversation where I call you up and say, Hey, you really suck for standing me up. <laughs> totally. Totally. But what it seems such like a hairline difference in a, in like a split second moment yeah. uh, between those two things. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I want to say this too, this is both, both about sadness and anger because the kind of anger you just talked about or described was it is is what i would call secondary anger it's a secondary okay. emotion uh it's the feeling that really is intended to be the signal flare for the deeper emotion <laughs> um and I, I i don't know this is probably risky to put a number on this but i think the vast majority of the time when what we're showing it looks looks sounds and feels like anger it's really just a, a, a signal that there's something deeper going on. That so what's first level anger? I don't understand the difference. First level anger is a genuine conviction of the need for change or justice that needs to be made right. Gotcha. But, okay. But, but that, that genuine anger, let me put it this way. First level anger doesn't have a target. secondary anger tends to have a target <laughs> someone else has got to pay someone else <clears throat> has got to has got to own up to this mm -hmm. it also seems like at another level that um and this may be just really basic it's just leaning heavy on the first and second idea i'm thinking of like layers of an onion that if, yeah. that if you're talking about first level anger I'm angry about something. And if somebody were to say why you peel back the one layer and it's, it's an injustice that you can identify and that everybody would identify pretty well as an injustice. Mm -hmm. That a second level would be why. And underneath that is actually a layer that has another feeling before yes. I can get to anything deeper. Yes. Yep. Yeah. And I also think it's helpful to, to consider that a lot of times that secondary anger is an anger that tries to protect us from feeling emotions that are more vulnerable or that would, that make us feel more weak and helpless. Like feeling yeah, sure. sad, feeling sad doesn't feel very strong or tough. Right. Mm -hmm. But right. feeling mad, feeling angry, feeling pissed off yeah. can feel energizing, right. That can feel uh, strengthening almost. And so a lot of times our anger tries to protect us from feeling those what we think of as weak emotions. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. What would you, would you say anxiety is an emotion? And there's, there, I don't think there's another word 
in this sort of realm of, of conversation that's more prevalent on the college campus today than anxiety. Like, I mean, in the realm of emotions that words gets used all the time, I feel anxious. Is that, is that sort of similar to sadness, anger, joy? Would you call anxiety an emotion like that? I, I think anxiety is in the sort of fear family, right? If we have anger in its sort of own, its own family, anxiety is a form of fear. Mm. Um, I think like anger, anxiety can also show up as a secondary emotion. So not as a genuine emotion in and of itself, but more a, a sign, like a fever, right? Like a, if I have a oh. fever, that is a symptom. In, in, but in and of itself, that's not the sickness most of the time, right? Like I have a yeah, fever. It's a real thing happening to me for sure. But that's yeah. right. It's a, actually a response to something else happening. That's right. That's right. That's right. And so a lot of times I, I think anxiety, when it's just kind of pervasive, like it just kind of hangs and hovers and clouds that kind of anxiety i i think often masks loneliness and disconnection masks hurt and fear uh masks uh sadness for sure a lot of times um and i don't mean to derail us going and talking about the enneagram but a lot of times the way I see this show up is if I'm working with someone who leads with type seven in their personality, which is a, and I'm generalizing here, like a very enthusiastic, bubbly, uplifting, optimistic personality structure. When they, when people who lead with that type in their personality have something they need to grieve or feel sad about something, the fever is anxiety. The, it looks yeah, like ag agitation and an anxiety, like the, the feeling like you need, you know, you need to throw up, but you, but it hasn't really hit you yet. <laughs> yes. Um, yes. It's terrible. Feeling. It's this yeah. sort of, it's this, uh, it's that kind of anxiety that like, I don't know what's going on here. I, I can't sit still. I'm agitated, mm -hmm. but I don't really know where I'm going either. You know? Yeah. Um, does, do you, do you think anxiety conveys a, um, a, a pretty general kind of data? Like, anger and sadness do so if if anxiety is showing up in, in, in a in, in connection with genuine fear I, I believe fear brings the message of the need for need to practice and prepare or brace for what's coming um and so anxiety can bring that message, right? Like if I have, a, if I'm feeling anxious because I have a big test the next day or I have a paper due the next day that I haven't written yet, then an, a healthy response to that anxiety is, oh, I need to prepare for that. <laughs> I need to get moving now for what's coming later, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's a very, that's, that can be very healthy and normal anxiety because uh, we need those wake-up calls sometimes. And oftentimes our motivation doesn't kick in without that anxiety sort of taking the lid off of it. <laughs> does that make sense? It does. It does. Um, and, and, but that is, that is helpful the way that fear is helpful when we need fuel for quick response in an urgent situation. Right? Yeah. Hmm. But when you – know, it's when it's when we don't receive it as such or we distract ourselves from it, then anxiety may go away temporarily, but it's going to come back with a vengeance sooner or later. If we've just kicked the can and or distracted ourselves or procrastinated, we're not really, we shouldn't really expect for our anxiety to go away uh, outside of just maybe right then in that moment. Yeah. Uh, a friend of mine in Chattanooga, Anna Youngs, she's a therapist in town. She recently said uh, to uh, a group of college students at the house, she recently said that she really wanted us to learn how to increase our window of tolerance. And she was referring to like particularly uncomfortable feelings that we, she, she argued we don't tolerate those very well. 
And she suggested it be healthy and good for us to learn to sit with them longer. And almost all the emotions we're talking about are actually things that are uncomfortable to feel and can be uncomfortable to talk about and share. And would you agree that, that it would be really good for us to, to learn how to tolerate uncomfortable feelings for longer or, and more of them? Absolutely. And that term, the window of tolerance, which originates in, in trauma and anxiety work in my, in my field um, and frameworks that deal with that uh, is just a really, I think, helpful term because, you know, when I talk about emotions, even difficult emotions being really important and to be cared for and stewarded and, and even embraced to an extent, you may understand some of what I'm talking about, but that's still vague, right? Like that. So you're saying I need right. to love my fear. You're saying I need to like my sadness. No, that's not, that's not what I'm saying because in practice, this just looks like tolerating it. <laughs> and right. The mechanics of this it, are much more about learning to endure or tolerate those pain signals when they show up. It's not about liking or loving or feeling happy about them. <laughs> they, they're never going to feel fun. That's, that's not the goal. Uh, and it's not needed, which is good news. Um, in practice, I need to learn to tolerate it so that I can receive the whole message. Because if I can receive the whole message, then I have something to respond with or respond to. I'm just, if I won't receive the message, if I can't tolerate receiving the message, then whatever action I take is not actually action. It's a reaction. And I don't think any of us are really going to feel a sense of wholeness, integrity, and peace when we hit the pillow at night, when we've spent our days just reacting to life instead of responding. Um, and so yeah, the, back to the example I gave earlier with uh with my son where i responded with frustration to his frustration because i couldn't handle my own i couldn't connect with my own anger and frustration that's a good example of me needing to practice widening my window of tolerance hmm. the reason that i reacted by trying to offload my anger and frustration on to my unwitting son <laughs> is because internally I in the pain of my own anger. Does that make sense? It makes a ton of sense. I, I was, um, it's ironic and sad, um, but, and it kind of drives the nail deeper. I have these experiences all the time with my own kids, but in your inability to tolerate or your intolerance of your son's frustrations, it was sort of it's sad, but he had to tolerate yours, you know? That's, that's right. That's, that's so heartbreaking and ironic. But, but, and that is inevitable for all of us. Whatever, uh, whatever emotions we can't tolerate in ourselves, we will in some form or fashion ask others to tolerate for us. Mm. Lord have mercy. Mm. All right, I want to ask you a theological question right now as we move to the end of this. Um, one day as a follower of Jesus, we're going to live in a renewed earth, new bodies. You know, in Revelation, among other things, John says uh, that he hears this promise from God that there will be no more sorrow, no more death. Um, and I'm thinking about this, Jonathan, because... I think so often instead of hearing when I feel sad, instead of hearing something really matters to me that I've just lost. So often what I hear is I shouldn't feel sad and I don't want to be sad anymore. And I'm looking forward to the time when I won't be sad anymore, <laughs> you know? And, and so this, this promise is strikes me as this sort of interesting, um, I guess it's an interesting promise in life. It's, anyway, I'll just ask the question. The question is, do you think that there 
and this, I realize it's theolo- theological, so maybe this, maybe you don't feel comfortable answering this with a certain degree of conviction. I don't know, but but do you think there comes a time in God's kingdom in redemption when there's a certain number of feelings that are just not on our palate anymore that we won't feel angry or won't feel sad or won't feel lonely anymore? And I guess another way of asking that's a little simpler is: Are any of these things intrinsically bad? Mm. Okay, I have so many thoughts about that. <laughs> I'm going to try to Good. share a couple of them. Um, and by thoughts, I mostly mean questions and wonderings. Um, but the more I think about what healthy response to difficult emotions can look like or what results from it, the more I, I, I just consider closeness and relationship, that, that when we respond to those difficult, those pain signals like sadness or loneliness, when we respond well, we are pointed back toward intimacy and relationship and communion and connection. And when I imagine a redeemed state where that involves endless growth and intimacy and connection and communion, I can't help but imagine emotions all the emotions that are capable of pointing us in that direction (laughs) so Hmm. yeah i i imagine feeling sad or lonely even in redemption even in heaven in eternity with god to the extent that the that is the pull of gravity on me (laughs) when i'm turned in a, a certain direction that draws me uh, in again, that draws me further and deeper again into connection and closeness. The, the way that if, if, I, if we have those moments like what we talked about earlier where I feel sad that I've missed you and I call you and we actively reconnect, what a joy, what a joyful moment and a gift even that a moment like that is, right? Right. Um, and so it's hard for me, and maybe it's a failure of my imagination. That's really possible. But it's hard for me to imagine even a redeemed state that doesn't involve us having a nervous system like this. Uh, because our, that nervous system orients us back towards connection and closeness and relationship. And that is at the heart of God's very self. Mm-hmm. That sounds right. And I think, I actually think a really um, wise and healthy reading of Revelation doesn't require any kind of uh, cutting out of tears. I know it says no more tears, um, but we're, we often are trying to read that in a Western postmodern um, way and not in the way that it would have been read and understood when it was originally written. And yes. The, those, there is a promise at the heart of that, that the, the sorrow, the tears, the death, which is caused by sin, mm-hmm. are, are, will, will, will no longer be needed and therefore no longer present. Yes. Um, but, well, actually, you know, a good a book ending the Bible now, right? Going back to the very beginning, God says Adam was alone and there was mm-hmm. no sin in the world at the beginning of Genesis. Yeah, um, when Adam was alone, and it doesn't say that Adam felt lonely, um, mm. but that is a, that is a, that if if God, the God of all creation, looks at Adam and says Adam is alone, and and he's yeah. so alone, and it, and it's interesting. God doesn't deflect from that. It's a very uncomfortable sort of picture, maybe in a certain way, but um, in an effort to sort of have Adam look at his loneliness and understand the condition that he's in. God marches before Adam, all creatures, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. even invites him to consider them long enough to name them, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and in that time, what a, what a, what a crazy idea for us to assume that Adam didn't feel lonely as every other creature had a match, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then when God, God creates Eve, I shouldn't need to make this argument except for the way we read the Bible today. Sometimes it's a little strange. Um, but when God creates Eve, Adam breaks out into poetry, maybe even song. He's so yeah. excited that he yeah. has something that is as a match for him. 
And that is a response to the contrast. It's the contrast of what he was feeling before that moment, the loneliness right. that he felt. And so anyway, right. I guess even in, even in the opening pages of scripture, we have context for uncomfortable feelings existing in a world that has no sin. Mm. And that, and those feelings to your point are, are actually um, the, the, the story is bent toward connection as actually the culmination of God's creation, really this yes. massively celebratory moment where humans are connected and unashamed and totally vulnerable. Yes. Yes. Yeah, it's interesting. It's yeah. Really and, and the posture that, uh, the posture for humanity, the, the intended posture for human beings in relation, in relationship to creation to others to god is is not one of hiding right and that's right and and they didn't just hide because of the sin itself they hid their emotions (laughs) they hid their shame that's right and and the difficult and and the grief even probably i think uh they hid all they attempted to hide that from god in a picture of connection and communion and, and, and rightness is one where whatever we're experiencing, we're confessing continually before God, trusting, uh, entrusting that back to him. Right, man, that's good. I I suspect even, um, to, to take another step in one of those directions, I suspect in their finger pointing, right? When God shows up in Genesis three and begins asking them what happened and they begin pointing fingers, it strikes me that, that their desire for connectedness with each other was even hidden from themselves in that moment. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, this has been lovely. I need to, I want to end with two questions, one practical and one fun, but maybe both or both. But, um, in light of all this, the, the unawareness we might have of emotions, the fact that many of us don't give much room to listen to them well, but that they are instructive, that they need some guidance, all these kinds of things. Any, do you have a word or two on just really helpful practices for us to become more mature with our emotions? Yeah, well, you, it's something that you alluded to earlier, just trying to cut a layer deeper and be more curious with those emotions whenever possible that, that recognizing if, if I am feeling upset and that's a big category, right? But if I'm feeling upset about anything, try to take a beat and consider where's this coming from? What am I feeling? Even just asking yourself that question is a really helpful part of the process. So, so if I, yeah, if I notice that I feel uncomfortable or agitated in any way, like any kind of feeling upset, trying to pause, just take a beat and go, where's this coming from? And, and, and doing whatever we can to be curious rather than judgmental of ourselves and our experiences, trying to assume that whatever I'm feeling and wherever it's coming from, it's important and valuable information that I need to receive. That's really good. Hard. Sounds simple. Sounds difficult. Makes me think also when somebody else asks me how I'm feeling, I should take a beat there too. Yes. Yes, absolutely. That's an invitation. When someone asks you that, that's a genuine invitation. Often, not always, I guess, but often that's a genuine invitation to, to witness, bear greater witness to your own experience of life. Mm. I can promise that if that person didn't actually mean to create an invitation, um, you honoring that invitation is a good way to get them to stop. (laughs) 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 Well, let me tell you how I feel. Uh, All right. Last question I want to ask is this, uh, because most of the folks listening to this are going to be 18 to 24 and I hear your kids. That's amazing. And I would love for you to have um, a window for them. So uh, most of the folks listening are going to be like 18 to 24 um, what's one thing you'd love to tell your 18 year old self? Get angry. <laughs> yeah. I, I, 
it yeah i really would love to have been able to say that because as an adult i mean i would say the last decade of my life has been characterized by learning how to practice and steward anger and i'm still early in that process but i'm far mm. enough in now to feel profoundly thankful and to have been able to experience a freedom and a joy now in life that I never experienced at 18. Um, wow. And it's be because I'm learning how to accept and receive and steward anger. Um, it, yeah. Like it, when I am walking in health and humility with my anger, I'm awake. I know that I matter. I know that what happens in my mind and heart and life and relationships and the lives and relationships of people around me matter urgently. And I'm, I'm a more whole person. So I, and, and that, the the version of me at 18 was more like half a person because I couldn't access anger. I couldn't accept it. Wow. Thank you, brother. I appreciate you a lot. And I love you. I love you too, man. Thanks for sharing this with everybody here. Of course. Thanks for having me. Friends, thanks for joining us today. Here's to waking up and growing in an awareness of the life that we actually have to becoming better stewards of all that God has given us. And here's to hope for better things to come. If you're interested, there's an earlier podcast episode where Jonathan speaks specifically to emotions in the midst of this pandemic. You can find his contact information in the show notes. And if this uh, podcast episode's been helpful for you, uh, please share it with somebody. I hope you have a great day. Um, I love you and God bless you.